0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void war prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: All right, what is going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdel-Jabbar. What's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. So, did you hear about Vladimir Putin wants to clone ancient horse lords, the
2: Thraci? <laughs> yes, I did hear about that, and and it is fucking fascinating. And I can't wait to talk about it.
1: <laughs> so the Russian government, and I'm really surprised that Rachel Maddow hasn't picked this up yet, but the Russian government, they're planning on cloning Dothraki warriors from Game of Thrones right and amassing them on the border of Russia and Ukraine so they can go in and they can uh, start raping and pillaging the Ukraine. Well, and the, that, that Dothraki horde is going to... Uh, tear through Ukraine and then it's going to hit, um, you know, countries like Lithuania and Estonia and make it all the way to Western Europe where they uh, are one army. And hopefully, they don't actually link up with the unsullied
2: warriors
1: with the Darnarius Targaryen, because then that, that will be. I don't be think it's going to go issue. down that way, man.
2: I honestly, I honestly think it, you're, you're, I mean, the Dothraki horse warriors were great, but right now, I mean, like. Yeah, you saw the the final battle with the Dothraki. They're basically just cannon fodder, right? They're going to rush out just like they did at that final battle, right? Poor and leadership. Yeah, just poor leadership. They're just going to rush out into Ukraine and they're going to get mowed down by American weapons and then and then the Russians will step in later, you know? It's just cannon fodder. Well, well, you're underestimating them because they have the ability to regenerate
1: because that episode, the long night or battle of Winterfell, yeah, the, when yeah. they all seem to have perished in some misguided charge with flame swords. <laughs> seriously Just terrible tactics, by the way, the way that they line that up. If you guys know that episode of Game of Thrones, possibly the worst display of medieval tactics I think has ever been The worst display of military tactics. Military period. ever, ever. Yeah. It, it was just... You could have found one dork on YouTube who could have thought of a better way to do that. A better battle episode. plan against but, the whites. Yeah. Um, they, you know, even though they all seem to have perished in the very beginning of that battle, they seem to have uh, revived. Right before they them. sacked King's Landing.
2: Yeah, at least some of they them. All, they all.
1: They, they were all there. Like they seemed <laughs> like they were back. They were back. Yep. So I think that you underestimate that ability. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so What's the uh, not to story? get too <laughs> off track yeah. on that. Um, yeah. So one of our listeners, where, where we're going with this, one of our our listeners uh, shared this this article on Twitter with me, and um, he was like, "Hey, this is going to be really up your alley," and I was like, "Yeah, you're right. This is this is definitely something that we would be." interested in speaking about
2: yep when you Um, sent it to me like i just read the title and i'm like yep let's do it i didn't i didn't read a single thing about it i was like just title alone i'm like i'm interested let's do it and it's the perfect story that lives in the crossroads of
1: what we talk about and Mm -hmm. it's it, it basically sits in the intersection between you know modern global politics um ancient civilizations and then um add fringe propaganda to that as well so in the Russian Republic of Tuva, which is in southern Siberia, there have been these um, archaeological excavations. Um, Tuva in the past was, and still is, is home to...
2: The Republic um, of Tuva, that is.
1: Yeah, the Republic of Tuva is home to, I guess, the descendants of their, of nomadic-type people. It's more Asiatic and less Slavic-looking, the people who live there. Mm-hmm. And this... This area was ruled by by Mongols for a long time, and it was also part of China for a couple hundred years. Tuva actually didn't become part of Russia until like around the 20th century, the early right. 20th century, right like prior to World War One. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But these excavations that are going on are of these tombs of Scythian royalty. Yep. And this article was just released from uh, ancientorigins.com, and it seems to have been syndicated to some other outlets as well. Um, Dailymail.co.uk. And, uh, Daily Mail. <laughs> Daily Mail is website. like the fourth, the fourth largest newspaper in England.
2: I know, but I hate their website. It's just so riddled with ads, and they make you disable your your ad blocker to read it, and that was one of the, the better versions of this particular article was on Daily Mail
1: it was a shitty it's a shitty website it's the yeah, it's
2: shittiest made website and i hate it 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 angers me every time i have to go on it i know it's and then like shame the on you dealing the like thing
1: and the the whatever those uh applications that just shove like ads down your
2: face it's just every it's like the the actual reading space is about like maybe 25 percent of the actual screen (laughs) and the rest of it is just nonsense links and like junk and like ads and just nonsense
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's like look at this they always have that like you won't believe you will not believe what (sighs) this child star will look like now
2: right it's always some shit like that
1: like oh my god you'll be Struck by how beautiful this child is. They always right. like weird, creepy stuff like that. It's too. like
2: top ten, you know, uh, nipple slips in sports <laughs> or some stupid shit like that. You know, it's like something dumb. All the this time. person smoked meth for a day.
1: See what she looks like thirteen day, thirteen years later.
2: Yeah, and like thirty seven clicks later, you get like a two sentence story. <laughs> yeah, um, and then by the time you're
1: done reading that, like your computer has needs to be repaired like (laughs) it's done (laughs) yeah it's broken yeah um all right so the story is called uh, russia wants to clone ancient Scythian warriors and um i'll just go through it right now it's not too long so uh, russia's defense minister has announced his plan for the dna cloning of ancient siberian warriors and their horses the ancient Tunic burial site located in the Valley of the Kings in the Republic of Tuva in Siberia holds the remains of 3,000-year-old Scythian warriors. So um, the Scythians are a group of ancient tribes of nomadic warrior type people who are, um, just a quick synopsis, we're going to dive deeper into them in this show, yeah. but quick synopsis, they are a warrior-like people that existed between 900 B.C. and 200 B.C., and they're basically known for clashing with every single civilization that existed in that time period that we know about in the in the Near East. So they yep. clashed with the Persians. They clashed with the Assyrians. They clashed with the Greeks. Greeks. They clashed yep. with
2: the Macedonians. Mm-hmm. They clashed with everyone. Yep. Um, part, part of that was just like their their location, though. <laughs> they yeah. just happened to be in that, like, you know, crossroads in that marchland, if you will. But, exactly. Yeah. And they're just, you know, they're known as kind of
1: disruptors in history. They're like the precursors to the Mongols mm-hmm. is a good way to think about them. Yep. So to go on with this article, now, Sergi Shigoy, Russia's defense minister and one of Vladimir Putin's closest advisors. Um, Sergi Shigoy is actually from Tuva. He's half um, Russian or half and, and um, his mother, I think, or no, his father He's half Tuvan or Tuvanese, or I don't know what the, the mm, correct what they term call is. themselves. I if heard he's he, like
2: best boys with Putin, though. Like they're they're like real tight.
1: Yeah, it's one of his. Clues. He's been around forever. He's been a, a, up, on the upper uh, cabinets there for a real long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at him, he looks like he's half Asi- Asiatic. You know, he he looks less Slavic. He's from there, so maybe this explains. You know, maybe some fascination with the of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has disclosed his desire to use DNA cloning to recreate recreate an army of noble warriors. However, is this story perhaps a high level cover up of the mass the signals of impending war?
2: All right. So I I, I think this is a little bit stretchy because he didn't specifically say this, but I'll let you continue. But it's very very
1: strange. So um basically the art the crux of the article is that the Russians are trying to create this clone like army in, like in Star Wars. Yep. <laughs> yep. Which is just
2: a wild accusation based so, off so what they're we're bringing get back jango fets. It's like they're crossing Star Wars and and uh and uh, Game of Thrones, right? Instead of yeah. cloning Django Fett, they're, uh, they're, they're cloning uh, the Dithrakis. Yeah, they're cloning the Dithrakis. Kaldrogos. A bunch of Kaldrogos.
1: So, archaeologists have been excavating the tuba burial mound known as Arjan II since 1998, and a team of Russian and German archaeologists began excavating graves and tombs in the so called Valley of the Kings in 2001. Mm-hmm. Now, a Russian Swiss archaeological team is being tasked with finding samples of. For DNA cloning of an army of warriors. An army of warriors. Or Game over, warrior. man. <laughs> Game over, man. Oh, Jesus. What the fuck what are we going to do, do now? Game over. Uh-oh. Um, you ever see Aliens? Yeah. Bill Paxton. <laughs> Game over, man. Game <laughs> over. What the fuck are we going to do now? <laughs> um, so, um... Yeah, they're being tasked with to get these DNA cloning of army, war- army warriors. Um, an article in the Daily Mail explains that ancient Tunic burial sites contains 3,000-year-old nomadic warriors, which were often laid to rest with their horses. Sergi Shigoi is from the Republic of Tuva, and he recently spoke about the potential of the extra- 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 extraordinary 3,000-year-old extraordinary. <laughs> extraordinary Scythian burials in the Valley of the Kings. The controversial bit is that this potential he talks of its sample it of is to sample 3,000-year-old Scythian DNA so the military so that military scientists can re, recreate an ancient army of advanced warriors.
2: Okay, stop there for a second. He didn't specifically say this, so I think they're definitely, definitely stretching this. Like. Some they paid somebody. They didn't as,
1: say he didn't, he didn't say anything like
2: that. Yeah, he didn't say anything <laughs> yes. like this. Like, All he
1: said was, "This yeah, is." Quote him.
2: Let's quote him real fast. Hold on, because but then let's go back to that next point after that because that's my favorite part of it, um, which is here. Uh, but uh, so, what did he exactly say? Uh, he said. Mm, he said it would be possible to make, speaking about the DNA samples that he could potentially get from the mummies that they find, he said it would be very possible to make something of it, if not Dolly the sheep. And he also said, in general, it will be very interesting. None of that said anything about making uh, like a race of super soldier Scythian Russians. There's nothing, <laughs> like that is a leap, a hop, skip, and a jump you know a, a giant leap forward from that one particular thing but it is an interesting uh thing to say uh, made for
1: interesting content at least Just yeah swing it's, it that
2: it's, way speaking of interesting content this next bit i really like a lot so this this part of the article i i thought was hilarious yeah according to the report in the unilad 3 years ago when um choigu initiated the russian swiss archaeological digs he called in a quote modern day shaman so as the excavations did not anger the spirits because God forbid, you know, when we're trying to make our Russian Scythian clones, we anger the spirits. <laughs> well, that's that'll, just that'll common be courtesy. the undoing, you know. <laughs> that's common.
1: That's common courtesy. Like if you're digging up bodies, if you're digging up remains of people who are laid to rest, archaeologists let, when they're when they're in. um when they're digging up sites and they discover burial grounds, um, and then they figure out where like tombs are or where people, you know, if they'll find a symbol and like, oh, that's a, that's clearly a tomb here, they'll stop poking at it in those areas because they don't want to. They don't want to dig up dead bodies. That's they know it's kind of disrespectful. And no, evil.
2: they do want to dig up dead no, bodies. No, <laughs> I know, but
1: they 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 don't want to dig up all of them. You know what I mean, like. They want to get one of them, but they don't want to continuously just like dig up all these people who are laid to
2: rest once they figure know. out th- like the pattern I think, of where they. I lay. think there's a there's a fine line between
3: or at least some being of them respectful
2: are. of the dead and you know like engaging in some you know hokey pokey shamanism something or the other. Well, they got the you know not the
1: they're gonna dig them up <laughs> like well, like they know that it's disrespectful, so they need to take the um precautions of getting some type of uh somebody yeah. who can speak with the spirits to the, prevent and them from therein being therein
2: lies like that's what I find like odd because archaeologists are scientists. They are they are like historians. You know, what, what place does this you know, this isn't fucking Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? This isn't you know this is, <laughs> That's not a thing. <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> i th- i
1: don't believe. i under i understand why they're doing that. they might as well get some type of i don't know at the very least to symbolize showing respect because at least you can say like hey look we're we're showing the body's respect so we have you know we got this guy who wears like um a necklace full of teeth and stuff <laughs> sp- chanting some mumbo jumbo over the body so A tree doesn't fall on them or something, and they're asleep. So, um, all right. Last Wednesday, Zvezda TV said the Russian defense chief told an online session of the Russian Geographical Society, which was attended by Putin. Of course, we would like to very much find the organic matter, and I believe you understand that would follow what would follow that. The defense chief added that the burials were discovered in permafrost. Which should have preserved organic matter. Therefore, it would be possible to make something of it, if not Dolly the sheep, added Mm -hmm. Shigoi. He was, of course, referring to Scotland's July 1996 announcement that a female domestic sheep, Dolly, was the first mammal cloned from an adult somatic cell using the process of nuclear transfer. Let me try to put this whole story into perspective without getting myself into trouble, according to a 2017 PBS report. Russia's propaganda machine... Okay, this just goes on to say yeah. some goofy stuff. I'll only read the last sentence because it's so cringy. Considering Russia's propaganda machine, let's now return to the session last Wednesday under normal circumstances in other countries apart from China, Yeah, would have thought Shigoi would have been mentioned Russia's recent deployment of almost a 100,000 troops to the Ukrainian border. With the world's media watching, Russia fearing an impending war, the man who presses the big red buttons only talked about resurrecting an army of ancient Scythian warriors. This means one thing. It's time for Ukrainians to run for the hills. Cringe.
2: Cringe. <laughs> was,
1: um, so... It's a fun little, um, article, um, that kind of is obviously incredibly conspiratorial and jumps to conclusions that, you know, probably really aren't real. Um, it is kind of akin to like veterans today type, (laughs) type nonsense. A little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is funny. I kind of appreciate little goofy articles like that, mm-hmm. and I don't think any reasonable person could, in fact, take that seriously—that they're actually trying to clone a uh, army of ancient peoples to, you know, somehow have some type of military advantage, because. You know, clearly, most likely, that wouldn't give you any type of military advantage in practical sense. (laughs) Like, no, you don't suddenly
2: clone them, and they don't all 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 of a sudden remember their past. And like, oh yeah, I remember how to ride a horse and shoot fucking poison. (laughs) They're not going to descend
1: (laughs) from the ground like. (laughs) This is necromancy. The the shaman is like,
2: (laughs) see, that's why they needed the shaman because they're they're. It's not cloning; it's necromancy. They're rising them from the dead. That's what they <laughs> and they
1: take like a horse. They cut open a horse and they like sprinkle the horse blood over this mount. Yeah, and it's like, and
3: then
1: yeah. all of a sudden, like a storm comes, and then all you see these hands just pop up
4: yeah, you know, out of the of ground,
1: lightning. like yeah. a pet cemetery. <laughs> yep. So all these hands just start popping out, yep. and it's like, uh, and then they come out, and then, and then they hand
2: them all. Kalishnikovs, <laughs> and they they're send more, them to Ukraine. And
1: they go, <laughs> they march straight to Ukraine in like a yep. slow march, like Game yeah, of Thrones style White Walkers that slowly come down. It
2: takes a whole season for them to get there. It, took
1: a, it takes a whole season, and then when yep. it comes down, you know they're defeated in a very unclimactic way with yeah. some, you know, fifteen-year-old girl stabbing it in the part when. that I whole— mean, I, I think you, you kind of pointed
2: this out this is like this article is obviously clickbait, right And what what really what really kind of bothered me about this clickbait is that it's like not even close to believable it, because you know, first of all cloning is a touchy subject all across the world like in general, just cloning anything, including a sheep, you know um, but human cloning is like another like like if this were if he were serious, Right? If Russia was serious about cloning anyone, any any human being at all, never mind you know ancient Scythian warriors. If they were like even coming close to this, this would be much bigger news and it would be a different type of news. It'd be it'd be like a like a ethical or scientific debate about whether or not we should clone human beings, you know, let alone whether or not cloning ancient human beings could be used for military purposes. You know what I mean? So it's like they just went too too far on the unbelievableness which is why i found it just so absolutely you know just ridiculous you know uh like if you wanted to make a more believable story if i were if i were doing this i'd be like i would just stop at their thinking about doing cloning you know or they're thinking about uh uh you know using the genetic information that they find to like justify their you know, claim to a certain land because of like DNA evidence or something like that. Like that would be a more believable clickbait. You know, this just seems like
1: just, well, the clickbait worked because we're, we're talking about it and we're promoting it. So,
4: right. It's, right. It's no, somebody but
1: like, who, some people are going to be like, okay, oh, let me look at this shit. Mm-hmm. And they're going to type in, in Google, Russia cloning, and then they're going to get all the ad money, so maybe they're, gonna, they're winning, and they're going to make money. Winning. So, in that yeah. sense, it, it was successful, and we're dedic, and we're launch, we're using this as a launch to talk about our topic anyway. Right. So, yeah, um, it what it was a successful uh, article in terms of what they're doing. Um, but yeah, obviously, for any sane person, it's not something that they're. I don't think any, anyone who, who reads this will come off thinking that you know this is like some type of security threat to the world that <laughs> that they're 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 recreating these old ancient warriors. You know, weren't there? I am no expert on cloning, um, but you know, weren't there a lot of mistakes when it came to making Dolly? Like, since you know all I mean, the different- I'm fairly
2: certain Dolly was sterile meaning like dolly couldn't reproduce.
1: Well, a lot of the a lot of the moral because i, I guess they they cloned dolly from the nuclear whatever process fusion
2: process well, not, not to be confused with like nuclear power nu- like a nucleus in nucleus. the nucleus of of a uh, of a sheep's of dolly the sheep's you know embryo and then they basically did some fancy fucking science shit and was able to figure out a way how to uh, inject the genetic material of itself into its own embryo, thus creating a perfect copy of itself. And then since Dolly, Dali, uh, Dolly's mother was a, a female, it was able to then carry that, that cloned version of itself to term.
1: Well, isn't one of the big moral dilemmas with cloning of ancient peoples is that we know that there's going to be mistakes made in that process and
2: well it's, going- it's not even just exclusive to ancient people like I was saying before it it, it this would extend to cloning anyone you know like yeah. if, if we but especially to clone you, especially you know, ancient or- people
1: like you know there's a debate in it's sign. I don't know how serious a debate is but there's a debate about cloning Neanderthals because we mm-hmm. could probably do it but it would we don't have the nucleus that it would require to um, we'd have to do it by a lot of experimentation, like
2: how, when, um, Um, yeah. And then there's ethical like issues with that because, you know, you might need to terminate a bunch of like unviable, you know, clones. You'd have,
1: yeah. And you'd have a Neanderthal that, you know, we're we're not talking about
2: like, like aborting a fetus. We're talking about like, maybe it it is, it is like born, but it's like fucked up in many ways. And then you, Yeah, it has. Do you you let it it, suffer or do you euthanize it, you know? And then that's like the ethical questions around it, you know? And
1: then we don't know what physical uh, or, you know, what their intellectual power will be um, versus like a homo sapien, you know, whether they'll be smarter or if they're considered mentally retarded by our standards um, or if they are considered to have some type of— There could also be
2: biological concerns, right? Maybe they they are— You know, uh, um, they could be harbingers of disease, right? Uh, Or perhaps, you know, they could be extremely susceptible to our diseases, which is probably more true, and then they just die pretty much immediately, you know? So again, there's a million ethical concerns about cloning in general, and I think one of the more interesting ones is, like, you know, in the same region, they're trying to, like, get mammoth um, DNA and, like, clone a mammoth with Asian elephants and, like, try to bring back the woolly mammoth. You know? But the same same set of, of, you know, issues is present. But, you know, on the other side of that argument there, uh, you know, it's it's possible that we could utilize cloning technology to unextinct animals that we are artificially driving extinct, you know, like the white rhino as an example just recently went extinct. We could maybe bring them back, you know? Or, you know, the dodo bird. Apparently those fuckers were tasty, you know. <laughs> so uh, you know, there there could be ways for us to to you know, bring back ecosystems by using cloning technology, but you know, again, this is all a, like a wild ethical and scientific debate that's going on. You know, they made a movie about this, about what, about what, what we're topic? talking about. Really, I didn't know that. What was that? Jurassic Park.
1: Yeah, life <laughs> finds a way. Um, yeah, it was a it was a big hit back in the day. Yep, well, the first one was good. I don't know what's your opinion on Jurassic Park beyond the first one.
2: I find them all entertaining in their own respects, but none of them will live up to the first one.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um well, what we thought this was a good um reason to talk about this, you know. It's it's a silly thing. Um not just to talk about cloning, but to kind of use this as a jumping off pad to talk about um, the, the, the story of Russian history because we've been wanting right. to do um you know we, we did a podcast on the jap on, on the history of Japan um I think it was a six part series or seven part mm-hmm. series and we wanted to do a similar thing with Russia and um, we're gonna do it a similar format we're not gonna do it straight like we did before just like seven continuous episodes of, of Japan we're gonna like kind of fit them in between but we wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about you know who the hell was living in Russia thousands of years ago?
0: Right, kind of like the because ancient, that's
1: a very unclear yeah. thing. Yeah. I you know we always assume that nation states are um,
2: constant. existed in perpetuity. Right? Yeah,
1: they existed in perpetuity. That their lineage goes back many thousands of years. So when you say, "Hey, what was ancient Russia like?" or "What was Russia like?" Um, you know, two thousand years ago, and you're like, okay, well, what what were the ancient Russians like? Well, what did, ancient, you know, there wasn't a Russia. Come to
2: find out that there wasn't a there Russia. wasn't such
1: thing as a Russia. You know, the construct or a of Russian people, Russia, yeah. or the Russian people, is something, is something that existed many, 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 or excuse me, not really that long ago compared right. to um, written, you know, compared to written history or the times that written history. And I want to talk. Jump this off about talking about the step because I think it's a really important concept to understand what the step is. And um, people who listen to Dan Carlin, and this is how I originally learned about this stuff through Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, the Scythians are someone he he he's always talking about the blood-sucking Scythians. You know he'll. Mm-hmm. It, it's, I think this kind of steered into my brain. And these people lived on the steppe, which was a this incredibly open grassland that runs from Mongolia to Manchuria, um, pretty much through Central Asia, and then it extends out to the westwards to to the Hungarian plains, the Great Hungarian plains. Right. And this is a type of landscape that is that is just just vast and wide open like think of the great plains in the united states it's just wide open and or the dothraki plains or the dothraki the plains. plains the great Glass, the the, the great grassland mm-hmm. you know isn't it kind of funny that to teach or, or not I don't, I don't want to say we're teaching but to like reference history game of thrones is like something that's more relevant and people know more stuff about game of thrones than actual history it's a useful tool, man. It's a very useful tool. Well, that's because George R. R. Martin, he based a lot of Game of Thrones or the Ballad of, or uh, Song of Ice and Fire mm-hmm. off things from real history. history. You know, yeah. He mm-hmm. so the um, Dothraki are kind of like an; they're a combination of the Mongolians and the Scythians and the and the Huns. Like these people mm. who lived in these But also areas. the Native
2: Americans and things like that, yeah.
1: Yeah, like he combined—that's that. That's what they're based off of. They're mm-hmm. supposed to represent these nomadic horse warrior people that, you know, were traveling in these large plains and were really scary and would clash with these, these civilized—you um, know, these pockets of civilization—
3: it's not a
2: terrible way to think of this you know i think it's a it's a helpful useful tool but it's not it's obviously you know the the real history is not exactly they're not exactly they're rocky but it's it's a it's a helpful starting point
1: yeah it is there it is a helpful starting point um but what makes people and um you know i i think what ultimately kind of steers a culture um to, to the way it is is the geography you know what where, right. where do they live
2: and what kind of conditions do people have to live off of or live in? And- we talked a lot about this actually in our, uh, on our episodes of Ancient China and how like the geography kind of dictates the types of people and the cultures and, and like how they live uh, just, just based around the geography. A lot of that has you know, direct influence over that.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper?
1: Yeah. And the steppe is is like the major influence on on this type of nomadic culture because there's you, you this is not a place where you settle, you know. There's nothing to really settle on. You know, there's not like these rivers or these little cradle pockets that you're going to want to settle on. It's a place that just inspires movement. And the Scythians are one of these nomadic people that were always on the move. Mm-hmm. And what else what's also a um something that's native to this step are our horses like this is a natural Mm -hmm. environment for horses something that's interesting and i gotta really i have to repost this i think i'll repost this for our patreons after this because i think it would be kind of a nice um kind of a supplementary podcast to us but when i first started when we first started doing bro history um i had an interview with dan flores dan flores yeah i did an interview with dan flores and something that he Something that Dan Flores told me, or what's in his book, is that horses were actually native to the United States, not the United States, but they were native to the Americas, because we all, you know, the story of horses in America, we all tend to think that...
2: We brought them over on ships. And we ship. brought them
1: over on ships from Europe, but actually, horses were first native to, um, you know, the, the Great Plains and in, in the Americas, and they actually traveled and migrated to europe when we were all connected and then they they went extinct in the americas and then they came back from europe Mm -hmm. so it's kind of an interesting um evolution of that so (laughs) you have this open landscape you have horseback people and um this this kind of sense of of uh constantly moving around and um, another thing to add is that this place is really easy to get from one place to another Oh, yeah, So Wide open spaces. I was listening to this lecture by a archaeologist named um, Barry Cuncliffe, and um, the way that he explained it is that if you go – if you got on your horse in the Great Hungarian Plain at the beginning of spring you, and if you were traveling at a very normal rate eastwards, you would end up in Mongolia before winter. Mm -hmm. so we're talking about traveling a really long distance um in a in a very in in a in a period of about six or you know five to six months
2: right on a horse on a horse we're talking thousands and thousands of miles though like just for context
1: yeah so you're able to get from place to place very travel different from landscape to landscape very quickly Right, because You're like there's mountains and shit. Yeah, <laughs> you know? there's nothing in the way. There's just a few river valleys, and that's it. And another thing that he was talking about in this in this lecture was the gradient, the step gradient, which 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 was mm-hmm. real interesting. Um, essentially, it's weather from the west. It would come across the Atlantic Ocean and bring moisture, and as weather moved east, it would gradually drop its moisture. So ultimately what you get in the western steppe you would get these green pastures. So um the Great Hungarian Plains in the in the Pontic steppe in Europe. It's like this, you know, beautiful green pastures. And then on the flip side on the east, the further east that you go, you get these um, drier, colder steppes. So for mm-hmm. example, the Mongolian steppe where, you know, where the the Great Horde was from. Their native steppe was very dry and very cold. So there's this tendency tendency, to always be moving to the west if you're from the east.
2: Yeah, for greener pastures, that's where that comes Literally,
1: from. Literally, the grass is mm-hmm. greener on the other side. Mm-hmm. So you get this flow of people over thousands and thousands of years who are going from east to west. Right. And ultimately— all these horse people—they would always end up. They would end their journey in in the great Hungarian plains. You know, the, the last very edge of the step, because these are horse people, and unless they kind of assimilate into some other civilization, you know, they're they're uh, they're not able to really thrive in another environment.
2: Mm-hmm. Also, there's like some natural boundaries that'll prevent them from moving easily with just their horses.
1: Yeah. Well, that's exactly. So they can't really they can't really go anymore when it starts getting more wooded and there's more fo- rivers and you mm-hmm. know mountains and then Western, there's also like
2: seas and shit you know so like yeah it's, well, it's Western, just a natural stopping point
1: yeah like Western Europe there's a lot more uh, the geography is a lot more conducive to you know creating med- like these larger metropolises you know the reason why Paris was such a great city is because it's by a bunch of rivers and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and it's able to connect different parts in a country and become this centralized hub. Um, so they they stop when a when the step runs out, right? Um. Now, in the Altea Mountains, which is a mountain chain located where russia china mongolia and kazakhstan all meet um you start this is where you start seeing these predatory type nomads the scythian type people who originated from this area yeah and And good yeah and these scythian these more aggressive ones are you know the ones who spread out across other
2: areas and started conquering shit yeah um and 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 i think we should probably pull it back for a second and just talk about the scythians because you know like the, this, this whole bit is like you know started about how the russians are trying to clone the scythians and 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 the scythians are a steppe people but i think they're pretty fucking fascinating in general so i think it might be worth just like looking at them specifically so you know you kind of pointed out already that there are nomadic people that ranged on that eurasian step uh just as a reminder they're they're estimated to have been around around the 9th century BC to the 4th century BC but they really came up in the historical record uh, you know around the time of Herodotus in the 8th century BC and Herodotus bring it back uh, Herodotus yeah we're we're always going back to Herodotus It's so, our favorite historian like, th- our
1: favorite historian to talk about on this podcast and man this guy really him and
2: Plutarch just, you know <laughs> him and
1: Plutarch but man Herodotus has just I mean, he's called the father of history for a reason. The right. fact that we reference him in like half of our episodes about something.
2: Yeah, I mean, anytime we're going to dip into the ancient, you know, ancient history of something, we're probably talking about Herodotus, and and you know, he's troubling source to be honest. He, he's for the Scythians, he's probably one of the only sources to be honest, and we'll talk about that in a second. But um, you know, Herodotus has four separate possible origin stories for the Scythians in his writings. Um, but really three of them are trash and one of them is probably right. Uh, so I'll tell you all three. I'll, I'll start with the trash ones and then I'll tell you the one that, that probably makes the most sense. Um, so the first one, the Scythian legend, it's a Scythian legend about themselves where, uh, their first King, some guy named, uh, Targetaus, Uh, apparently he was the child of the quote sky God and the daughter of, um, and and a daughter of the Dnieper, which is a river near Smolensk, Russia. Which fun fact? Not too far away from Pogorov, where Russia is amassing troops, by the way. Um, so apparently, he's a he's he's a. They started from a sky god and a river. That's where they come from, according to one of Herodotus' legends. That he's just uh, he's repeating a Scythian legend about themselves. Which is obviously like you know it's akin with a lot of the other creation myths that we've talked about on the on the show you know from you know ancient Egypt or you know even Sumeria or Japan or or China or literally anywhere where they're just talking about some kind of like you know divine you know, heritage so clearly not a historical record um, another one uh, he got this from a Pontic Greek legend. Uh, so, so stories that the Greeks were telling about Scythia, uh, and they told about a story of a different first king of Scythia, and his name was Scythes, um, and apparently he was the child of Hercules and a monster named Echidna, who was like a snake woman thing who lived in a cave. So I don't really know how, <laughs> I don't know why uh, Hercules put his uh, put his dick in that, but. Apparently that's where Scythia comes from and also probably why they're so nasty, because, you know, they're strong like Hercules, but they're also a monster like Echidna. It's a weird, weird story. You know, it's funny um, because I was actually
1: uh I Wikipedia searched Hercules the show today. The nineties uh-huh. show. I don't know what made me think of it, but I was I don't know. You I'm were thinking about those? that? Yeah.
2: Well, apparently Every once in a while, I started
1: thinking about um, Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess for some reason, in the shows that came out of that time period. <laughs> Kevin
2: Sorbo—that was the—that was the peak of his of, of his career. That's, That's how right I right got
1: there. there because I saw Kevin Sorbo on. Tw- I got. On I saw Kevin Sorbo on Twitter. That's how I uh,
2: fell in that rabbit hole. And I, was I like, almost Kevin don't even Sorbo. want to know what he's talking about on on Twitter. I feel like I'll be disappointed. Um, what with Kevin Sorbo.
1: <laughs> and you're not that he like talks about. You're not going to like it like his takes. So I'll just well yeah. spoiler. I'll I'll
2: spoil it for you. Yeah. So I'm I'm just not going to read that because that'll ruin my childhood because I remember watching him.
1: Don't do what movies. I do, man. I don't read any things. I I try to stay away from celebrities and what they say because I don't mm-hmm. want like the sh- if I yeah, like don't a want show or something to to ruin it. Yeah. I don't want their politics to
2: Make to me ruin the them, show. To ruin the show. So I just, <laughs> yeah. I stay yeah. away. Yeah. I feel that. Anyway, here's here's another story um, from Herodotus about the Scythians. Uh, so this one, apparently, he got this from a Greek bard who traveled through the area, through the steppe. Uh, and apparently this bard said that they, the, the Scythians, originally lived in the south of what's known today as the Ural Mountains in Russia. And then they got into beef with like another central asian tribe uh that were probably cannibals uh and also got into beef with some like one-eyed cyclops people who fought with griffins uh that story is super fucking weird i don't know what to make of that one um like you had me up until you know the one-eyed cyclops people uh (laughs) but um apparently there was some beef with them and that's that's where they came from i don't know uh, but the most believable story that, and the, the most probable one, and admittedly the one that Herodotus believes the most uh, was uh, that they probably came from a southern part of Central Asia. and there was a war with a another powerful steppe tribe who lived in the northeast of Persia and basically forced them to migrate west uh, because they weren't able to uh, fight with them. And then yeah, that's that's yeah, they all conglomerated towards the west and became what what would be known today as as Scythian. But like the whole story, the whole backstory for an origin for the Scythians is messy and it's convoluted, uh, and especially because the, it's possible that the term Scythian is just kind of a broadish term describing just the steppe peoples in that region during that time. But there was enough cohesion in the culture, uh, of the Scythians, uh, that we found, um, uh, probably enough to consider them a whole peoples, but it, like a lot of things, it's, it's kind of complicated, and I think part of why it's so complicated is because they were nomadic, right? And they were moving around, and there were there were a bunch of sub-tribes, you know? And, you know, they sometimes banded together, and sometimes they didn't. It It's a little—it's confusing. Yeah, you know? I mean, that's what I always—that's
1: what I always assumed what the Scythians were. They were kind of just like this mysterious uh, nomadic group that was kind of like a catch-all phrase to the people who lived in that area— Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess through archaeological finds later, we were able to confirm that, hey, these guys actually had a lot in common, like culture-wise. Like, you know, yeah. tribes that we found in Siberia have often mm-hmm. a lot of—they have a lot of things in common in places that are maybe,
2: maybe closer to the Caucasus. Exactly, um, exactly. There's, so there's there's a, a, a cohesion about them, you know, that, that makes that makes it probably more likely that they were, you know— like A cohesive unit of people, um, but but again, uh, the 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 troubling part, and I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, uh, or anything like that, but like the Scythians people, they just kind of like fizzled out, like they just kind of disappeared. And you, you kind of wish that you
1: had child, like you know, Scythians, the Chaldeans, how you know, we yeah. still
2: have Chaldeans, you know, have yeah. Scythians still, yeah. Well, maybe we might, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um but uh because we're raising them from the dead. No. Um no. Uh what's interesting about it is that there wasn't like a war or like an epidemic or like a mass migration that we know about for the Scythians. People just stopped talking about them. And they just kind of disappeared. Which is really interesting. We'll get to that part later. Um but you know, I think the the individual locations for this group of people is unknown because they moved around a lot, right? But definitely, you know, they ranged from, you know, the, the Danube River, you know, out in the west in, in, in like the, the Europe, European part of the steppe and Mongolia way, way out there, you know, uh, in the Asian part of the steppe, but also down south to like the Iranian plateau, which is more than likely where they come from genetically, like they're, they're an Iranian, um, Iranian or Persian people's, uh, so it, it, uh, the general consensus is that they ranged over an extremely broad territory, which obviously would present you know some interesting uh, variations among even among the the Scythian people itself. Right, there would probably be like these are the you know Mongolic Scythians and these are the you know Danubian you know, Danubian Scythians and so. But they all spoke roughly the same language, apparently.
1: So well, yeah. if you look at a map of like. Um Just the ancient empires in, you know, five hundred BC or so, like Mm six hundred BC. You know, the old old time. Mm -hmm. You'll always see that. You know, everything that's not a civilization is kind of like mapped out
2: as Scythian. Like, oh, (laughs) every just everything north of like you know, uh, yeah, Sumerian uh, or everything north of Greece. Yeah. Everything no-
1: north of, like, the Black Sea, just, yep. like, Scythian. Scythian. Yep, that's <laughs> Scythian. That. <laughs> All of this, yeah. Well, well, I mean, it makes sense, though, because that's where a lot of our— going back to Herodotus, a lot of our um, people who are familiar with, with them from, from, again, the Dan Carlin podcast— um, you know, Dan, Dan Carlin did a three-part series on called King of Kings, right. and it's about the— the rise and fall of the Persian Empire, essentially. Mm-hmm. So he goes through the rise of Cyrus the Great, and then he goes, you know, to Xerxes, and then right. he goes to ultimately the um, the fall with with Alexander the Great conquering right. it. But he talks a lot about like how you know Cyrus the Great's initial clashes with the Scythians, and how Cyrus, you know, Cyrus the Great's death was actually a result of him fighting a Scythian um, pr- princess, like a Scythian, yep. pr- like a, a female warlord yep. w- who poetically mm-hmm. he was trying to marry himself off to, to yeah. make some type of an alliance. Yep. And she rejected that and they went mm-hmm. to war yeah. and uh, she poetically killed him on the battlefield. And it that is not obviously something that is probably there's a lot more myth to it than reality yeah. to it. It was kind there of is a some good reality, story. But we, as what Herodotus said,
2: women apparently did fight, and there's been archaeological evidence of like like Scythian female warriors, which is pretty cool, you know. Um, so there's there's some elements there, and we do know that that you know politics of the time. I mean, shit, politics now you know, uh, organizes itself around, like, uh, weddings of convenience, you know, to, you know, either to prevent war or to create it in some cases, you know. Um, so, you know, elements of that could be true, for sure.
1: No, I I think that it was just a convenient story to, to teach something, because ancient historians, there, there, there's things that are corroborated from Herodotus that um, that we can confirm are true. They're like, oh man, Herodotus got something right about you know how you know Scythians that were in current day Palestine or something like that right, as an right, example. Right. But then they'll say, but then they'll realize, but this was a story that was also being used to teach a lesson, send a message, teach mm-hmm. a story about irony or something like that. Usually yeah. it's something ironic or something about morals or something that a story that kind of humility you know so these these types of uh, qualities that they want to instill uh within their society so totally um uh, that's why there's so much to take with a grain of salt and with the Greeks when they looked at people like Cyrus the Great that's when they looked they always looked at him favorably and you know um the Persians became corrupted later on by you know, the, the corruption starts with, like, Xerxes. Like, that's when—I don't know why I went off of that tangent. But However, I think it's relevant to kind of explain
2: who they were or also, how they
1: were represented at that it, time by that, that's the story. That's a good that point.
2: That's a good point, and I think that that is a pretty good segue to what I wanted to talk about as well. You know, because a lot of what we know about the Scythians is, like, secondhand accounts, right? Like, from Herodotus, et, et cetera, um, or from these stories— you know um from like say the Persians you know things like that and oftentimes you know they dehumanize the Scythians and and like the trouble with the Scythians is they didn't write shit down <laughs> like so we can't read their firsthand accounts of things so you know oftentimes we get this kind of um very um superficial uh, description of of you know the Scythians and what who were the Scythians like and oftentimes it was very negative and you know, because they were uh, a warring people or at least you know, uh, they were, they had warriors, right? So uh, I, I think I kind of want to return back to the geography again. And talk about the steppe a little bit more in relation to the Scythians because I think it helps kind of understand who the Scythians were really you know so we talked about how that geography plays a big role in the in the types of cultures that spring up you know like I said on the uh, on episodes of China and in this particular steppe region like you said Henry this this geography really lent itself well to nomadic culture and particularly animal husbandry and that that part is pretty important You know, um, animal husbandry, you mean like marrying animals? (laughs) We went over this already. (laughs) I don't know. It just
1: sounds like that. Yeah. (laughs) It just sounds like that in English, like animal husbandry. It just sounds like, (laughs) oh, now they're marrying,
2: now they're marrying animals. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's not, that's not it. It's raising animals, basically raising cattle, sheep, you know, horses, things like that. It's a funny word. But th- it's important that that's what they do or that's at least their primary economic model is animal husbandry because, you know, like put it into perspective, this is the idea. The idea was that as the seasons changed, right, you mentioned, you know, that you could go from, you know, uh, uh, from the, the, the Western part, uh, the European part to, you know, Mongolia from spring to before winter, right? So it would take you not, not a super long time. And so the idea was, as the seasons changed, people would move around the range uh, looking for, quote, greener pastures, so to speak, you know? Um, so remember that part of these the areas that these people ranged across, you know, was Siberia, where it's fucking cold as shit, you know? And so they'd go someplace warmer during the winter, uh, and they would come back in the summer months. And oftentimes they would come back because they would just be following the animals that they were hunting, you know, um, because the animals would move back and forth in that same kind of pattern. Um, and so they'd take their, the horses that they would raise and the sheep and the cattle that they would raise. And as they would move back and forth across the steppe, they would interact with and trade with more settled people along the way. Right. And so this influenced pretty greatly, you know, their culture, but definitely their art, uh, a lot, um, for nomadic people, and this is kind of the trouble of being nomadic. There's often, you know, these like goods or you know materials that you can't really get your hands on because you're on the move all the time. But on the flip side, there's always an opportunity for you to trade because you have things that other people don't usually have. As an example, furs, you know, uh, you know, leathers. These things were in high demand pretty much everywhere. And, you know, a steppe, a grassland is the perfect place to raise animals, right? So they were able to mass-produce furs and leathers and hairs and wools and things like that. And these are all things that settled people who don't have a giant grassland to raise all these cattle on, you know, uh, didn't have. So it was pretty mutually beneficial.
1: And also an interesting dynamic, which still kind of goes on today, is that they were trading with, um, at least from the accounts I've saw with them, heard about them uh, trading with the Greeks. Yep. They would trade like... Um, mm-hmm. You know they're raw goods. They're you know they're raw materials. Leathers,
2: wools, you know, rope from you know uh, horse hair, things like that.
1: But they would trade it. With, they would trade it for finished goods. So yep. like what the Greeks would give them in return are things like they build um, them
2: like here's a shirt, <laughs> a shirt, <laughs> you know? or here's some armor, you know,
1: or armor or
2: swords, right, or wine, which is a was well they loved wine. That's that's actually a th- that was a bit of their um the, what I was reading is that they. They had a really like fetish for wine, and they would often like almost bankrupt themselves by giving away all of their wares for more wine. Like that was a big, it was a big because you know they don't sit around and they don't do it. And once they got a taste for it, it was just like.
1: What what's interesting though is that I feel like there's almost kind of like a level like a spectrum with these with these ancient cultures, um, especially with like. I feel like there's like more areas that you have like a greater degree of uh, of uh, like Scythian like culture, like the like our Macedonia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not really Greek, or nope. I, I guess you can not argue exactly. all day. You can yeah. argue all day about you know whether Macedonia or Macedonia, whatever or you want to call it, was, was Greek or was it its own thing? Was Alexander the Great Greek or was he Macedonian? Did he hate? Greek culture. Did he? You know, you can debate about that all day. But one thing that's not debatable is that they used cavalry up there in yeah, Macedonia. They used, horses. they used horses, and they were exposed to that horse type of people. horse mm-hmm. people type culture. And it was more spread out and less mountainous, like it yep. was down in in lower Greece. And they just had greater exposure. It, it was kind of like a blend, a blend of like you know civilized like, you know, smart, tactics and life heavy infantry tile, and stuff right. like that um, with, you know, the wildness of, of the horse um, people, of the horse people combined. And, you know, um, you know I worked. think it's what, it, it, what made them so
2: effective. For sure. And, and it, it actually worked both ways too, right? Because on the one hand, like you said, uh, the Macedonians were definitely influenced by the horse people in that respect. You know, you can definitely see. So in, in the military uh, warfare style of, of Alexander the Great, um, but it also worked towards the Scythians too. One cool bit was that you know Scythians loved gold, you know, and gold things, and they used a lot of ornate, you know, gold jewelry and art, and a lot of like, like you know, they would make these like uh, olive branch, like golden olive branch crowns that looked like like a Roman you know headdress, but that was actually kind of common among the, um, among the Scythians, um, and they would adorn their weapons with gold. Uh, and you can see a lot of actual like Greek styling in some of the Scythian artifacts that have been found in some of these digs, and you know there's a lot of debate on where they come from. Some some of them definitely were probably created by Greeks for trade with the Scythians. You know, like as you mentioned, like they would often sell them finished products. Um, but also there were still there were still some evidence ones of of Scythian artifacts that were just straight up mimicking Greek style, right? So they were actually creating their own ornate, you know, uh, uh, idols and, and artifacts and, and, and jewelry uh, by themselves, but that mimicked Greek style. So like it, it worked both ways, you know, um, and their clothing, things like that, you know, we're, we're often mimicking Greek styles. Um, and I think the widespread discovery of these types of artifacts really shows you how interconnected the Scythians were with their neighbors. One fun fact that I found out was that some artifacts that showed Scythian styling or at least can be connected with Scythia uh, have been found as far as Korea and Japan. Did you know well, that That
1: makes sense? I mean that, that sounds that sounds uh, very believable because yeah. the range of travel that these people lived within stretches from the West towards you know Manchuria. Yep, is right over there by China, yep. aren't by Korea.
2: Um, it's just wild how far out that gets, and Japan like how trade. how the Scythians, you know, they, they made a small little impact on on those like you know some far eastern you know uh, um, cultures. And I think more importantly, though, that these artifacts d- depict the type of culture that the Scythians had. You definitely see a lot of war symbolism. Uh, and uh, Something you'll find a lot is a horse Like a guy riding a horse with a spear Or a bow and arrow or something like that So that was a big part of the Scythian identity You know, is to be a horse warlord um, Both inside Greater Scythia And, and the, their neighbors Thought of them as like horse warlords And that's obviously a you know, product of the geography Right, that's, that's how they grew up That's how they learned how to defend themselves That's how they, you know, economically How they provided for themselves um, but there's also this interesting like big theme of three major symbols that show up. And one of them is a bird of prey. Uh, another one is a horse or some other mammal, especially with like um, hooves or uh, antlers. And the last one would be a wildcat, like a big, like a leopard or something like that. And they're often depicted together uh, as being in conflict with one another. and some uh, put forth the theory that that this type of, um, you know, symbolism in these artifacts was symbolic of the three realms so heaven earth and the underworld and they're constantly in struggle with one another so you know these these artifacts really show you that they're, they weren't just this um you know barbaric like um uh uh kind of you know uh, uh cannibal like crazy warrior people like they they were thinking about like the greater the the big questions in life you know they were philosophizing you know, they they had a uh uh you know a religious and a spiritual uh, uh uh cultural connection with this stuff so it's you know looking at their their um their artifacts really kind of it kind of humanizes them at least against the the um the types of ways that their neighbors would often depict them
1: does that make sense yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even the Dothraki, they had their little uh, redeeming spiritual qualities. Mm-hmm. That's true. Or did they? That's a true. uh say say, a
2: Dothraki wedding with only three deaths is a boring affair. <laughs> so I was just going to say, like, you know, all, all of this is, of course, just a theory because the Scythians didn't write shit down. Um, but lots of other people wrote, things about them and they left us clues in their artifacts and so here's some interesting stuff
3: that i learned um so want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Uh,
2: A lot of people seem to believe that they are you know, very violent horse warriors who were really dope at bow and arrows, and maybe they were using poison arrows. I kind of tend to believe that um, just because of the nature of, like, their animal husbandry and, you know, their, their warfare was, you know, horse warfare. So that makes sense to me. Um, there have been some accounts that shows them to have been mercenaries for the Greeks, and oftentimes we're acting as elite bodyguards for, you know, high VIP people.
1: Well, that Which, makes sense because if they're not higher, if they don't have their own like cavalry regiments down in the city-states of mm-hmm. Greece, then if they want to might hire well someone, m- yeah. might as well import them. And yeah. I'm sure these guys are looking for work. Yep. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you can make a pretty good living that down back back in those times. If you a, a winning city-state, yep. getting in the— be on horse and sack a sack of Greek city state. Look
2: Sounds all like fun. Wealth. yeah. But that's probably where a lot of the negative connotations from them come from too, because, you know, they were mer, mer, like any mercenaries looked down upon, any sellsword is going to be looked down upon, right? Because your whole job, you know, is to go somewhere else and, and do the dirty work for someone else. So, you know, the results of that often end up being that, you know, you're going to be, your your whole peoples as a whole are going to get you know um uh your people aren't going to have very nice things to say about
1: your people you know well no one no one sold their swords more than greeks (laughs) yeah totally but
2: like if we're talking about greeks here you know like the greeks would be pointing the finger right back at the horse people um i mean greeks were mercenaries in
1: the persian armies that invaded greece
2: yep that's true that's true Uh, So there's some other accounts that were pretty interesting about how they might have used, like, hallucinogenic drugs for religious or ritual purposes. Um, Not a ton of, like, uh, evidence for—archeological evidence for this because, like, obviously drugs like that, like, wouldn't have lasted that long, (laughs) you know, uh, for us to have seen it. But, you know, that's interesting. Um, There was other claims, and this one is probably bullshit, but uh, there were some claims that they were apparently cannibals. Uh, And that they used the skulls of their victims as drinking cups, which is pretty metal, but I don't know if that's actually, like, fact. I don't know if that's fact or not. There's not a a ton of evidence out there for that. Um, But a few things that we do specifically know for sure um, are, uh, you know, stuff that we get from their burial mounds that they left behind. So they obviously love horses. We know this for sure. Total equestrians and like it, they, they loved them enough where they would bury them with their masters. Uh, so the r- rumors of them being like horse masters are definitely true. Uh, you know, we can just assume that from, you know, the way that they revered their horses. Um, they love getting inked. That's a thing that's real. Uh, so like all of them, like a lot of the mummies that they've been finding from these people have been just straight up covered in tattoos, which I think is pretty cool. Um, but definitely would have been looked at, I think, especially probably from the Greeks, as like a bit of a ta- taboo or whatever, you know, like all these weird horse people with their drawings all over the skin and shit like that, you know.
1: It's um, it's interesting. If you, I love the way I, going back to Dan Carlin, but you know, I'm kind of forced to because he just does such a. He definitely introduced me to these. Um, historical topics, because we don't learn shit about this type of stuff in most historic, in most school, <laughs> school in general. So, the way that he explains the um, kind of like the evolution of like the Mongolian horde and like the skilled horseback is, it's uh, man, I can't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but his way, he, he's like, just imagine generations of horse people training and shooting arrows, like <laughs> um, in that you know the Scythians were kind of like the precursors to the Mongolians, mm-hmm. who were the uh, I guess the most evolved version of the horse warrior, who can just who is just they're so they're basically the horse and the and the person are connected. They're basically one person. Yeah, you know what I mean. They're, they're like, an extension. Of there's themselves, no right? The mm-hmm. horse is an extension of the of the rider mm-hmm. and. He says something along the lines of, like, a horseback rider back then would be just way more skillful on a horse than the best, like, horseback rider now.
2: Mm, I believe that. That's all he did. That's all he he, he had time for
1: yeah because just just if that's ingrained into your culture like living on a horse and being on a horse at all time, mm-hmm. like imagine like the best trick horseback rider who's able to shoot an arrow with his feet right. and then imagine like a society of that
2: right I mean there, there's some there's some truth to the you know the idea that they were the precursors to people like Mongolians and things like that because like I said earlier you know this the Scythians just kind of ended up like phasing out. Like there was no great war, there was no genocide, there was no epidemics, there's nothing like that. People just stopped talking about them, and it's it's very likely that smaller tribes within, uh, you know, the greater Scythia, uh, probably you know, gained prominence, and and you know, those peoples were assimilated. Like specifically the Sarmatians, which I want to talk about a little bit. Um, they ended up; they're one of the the sub uh, uh, sub Scythian tribes, and they ended up gaining power. Uh, and it's possible that just the rest of the Scythians just assimilated to that group or maybe they all moved, you know, nobody really knows. Um, you know, even the more interesting bits of this is that there have been some interesting, like nationalist pseudo origin stories. Uh, I don't know if you heard this one, you know, well, you know, uh, there's this whole like 30 minute documentary that I was watching before this, uh, about a theory that's like it felt like a little, a little bit like ancient aliens to be honest but it was by like these russians from like these russian universities and things like that and they're basically making the, the case that russians or at least part of the russian you know uh heritage is actually just scythians by another name right
1: yeah i've actually heard that as well um right so i have read stuff about that there so there's like a lot this is really esoteric stuff i just right. want to just start by saying that yeah, like there are like a few very... people who are like understand who understand who like know about this stuff and read this mm-hmm. stuff including myself like right. i'm not speaking on behalf as an expert i'm just saying this is very a very esoteric type top topic like the topic right. of like eurasianist and things like that yep you know like kind of the schools of thought thought in Russia today. Right. They take root back from like the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but this kind of relates to like the, the Eurasianist where it's like you see th- there's like a interest in all the countries in like Central Asia and right. Eastern sphere banding together. Um, I've, What I've gathered is that in the 1910s, 1920s, um, this idea emerged that the... Scythians were the um, descendants, or no, the Eastern Slavs were the descendants of the Scythians. Scythians. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of what this philosophy, is called Scythianism. What this idea kind of centered around was Russia's location of being a borderland between the East and West which gave it a sense of harmony. You know, like they gave this like this 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 um quality of universalism within Russia. Right. And Russian society had a duty to be both to balance both like European and Asiatic cultures. Mm-hmm. Um that's kind of like the probably not a great explanation of what this was. Well but it's the uh, best. No, it's
2: it's it's pretty good. And and I don't know if you heard about this one, but I found out through, you know, reading about the Scythians, because like I said, the the Sarmatians eventually kind of superseded the Scythians, right? They're the ones that came after uh, and they ruled in the steppe area, but they were mostly on the west side of the steppe um, in the European areas. And uh, there is also a Polish-Lithuanian, you know, almost pseudo origin story, That posits that the Poles and the Lithuanians are actually the direct descendants of the Sarmatians, and that is called Sarmatism. And I want to bring this to you and say that maybe you are a horse person in the same way that I am a sea people. (laughs) (laughs) We figured figured it out, out. Henry. That's where
1: we come from. You're a sea person, and I'm a horse person.
2: Yep, I'm a sea people. I identify more as a
1: sea person, though. I'm I'm a big. I love the beach and swimming and stuff yeah um so I, I identify as a c person. I'd like to think of myself as, 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 as if I could trace my origins back and if I discovered I was a c person, I'd be like, Oh, that's fucking awesome yeah <laughs> yeah, but I don't know well, being a horse person is pretty cool as well yeah i can I've rode a horse once in my life, like at a <laughs> bullshit ranch when I was like twelve. yeah only time I've ever been on a horse ever in my life, so it doesn't come natural. <laughs> and I remember having issues getting on it. Like I was like, "Oh fuck, I can't get on top of it." Embarrassed, <laughs> and like the rancher was kind of hot, and I was embarrassed in front of her. I was like, "Oh yeah. man, it's embarrassing." Just a poor, a excuse bit embarrassing, for a horse for this hot chick
2: there. who's teaching me how to ride a horse.
1: Um, oh yeah, dude,
2: this this Sarmatism, like this like ethnocultural concept is actually pretty fucking fascinating too. Like maybe we'll have to talk about it in a different episode or something like that. But it's basically like this whole idea that was trying to like galvanize the Polish and the Lithuanian, you know, peoples as like having come from this Indo or Iranic descent, you know, uh, which is fascinating. And, you know, it shows up in like their armor. It shows up in, you know, in the Polish armor, in the Polish, like garb of the day, you know, um, Like there were so many, so many like inroads on that and it's, it's kind of, it's, it kind of reads a little bit like, oh, um, it's a little culturally co-opting, but at the same time, it kind of makes sense because, you know, they idolized the the Sarmatians as like these like horse warriors and like Polish cavalry is like a thing. You know, like the, the Polish cavalry was like a like a and and the Russian cavalry is a big thing.
1: Haven't you ever heard how you stop the, the Polish cavalry? <laughs>
2: oh god, here we go. How?
1: You just stopped the carousel.
2: <laughs> oh man. Apologies. It's
1: an old school Polish joke. <laughs> how do you stop how do you stop the Polish cavalry? <laughs> Turn off the carousel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, but yeah, I mean, we're, they, well, one, like the, the, the Polish
2: military at the time, you know, they definitely modeled it around like a a strong like horse cavalry. You know, so it's yeah. interesting, you know. Very very interesting. Um
1: so here's another um thing to think about when when thinking about how a lot of this is interpreted in the 20th century, especially during the time of like the rise of nationalism and mm-hmm. Um, the periods of like the Soviet Union um, marching westward during World War II, right, is that a lot of people? A lot of people, like in you know, a Czech Republic, for is a really good example, and Poland right. is a mm-hmm. good example. A lot of these countries on the periphery of Eastern Europe, who are kind of Central Europe, a lot of the countries that don't now you know kind of wanted to get a NATO right, who who wanted to get in NATO right away because they did right. not want to. Get into some type of Warsaw Pact ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them during World War II. A lot there was there was a lot of propaganda coming out of like the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, not the Czech Republic at the time. Who that kind of um, looked at the Soviet Red Army as kind of like this horde. Yep, this 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 horde that was going to really just conquer everything on their way there and and honestly like i would have hoped to god i was liberated by the united states rather than the (laughs) soviet union like if if i'm in that predicament hindsight being 2020 man you are shit out of luck like fuck like yeah the nazis are gone but like man i really wish it was the united states that. but now i'm I'm going to starve starve. (laughs) now i'm going to have you know have a secret police monitor me and all this stuff um but there was a sense of demonizing the soviet the red army as kind of like this vague asiatic like uh menace threat so and, and they would constantly group in they, they would group in like different kind of like exotic cultures to kind of play up the threat. So they'd be like, oh, the Mongolians and Georgians. And, right. you know, even though a Mongolian and a Georgian are, are pro- couldn't be further apart right. um, ethnically and, you know, pro- language, linguistically. Culturally. You know, yeah. Culturally. But they would group them in together just to kind of add to that kind of horde mentality. Right. Almost it's like h- how Herodotus would explain what um, the – great Persian armies would look like on their way to Greece. You know, they'd right. be like, oh, they'd have, like, you know, tribesmen from Africa with, you know, horse people. You know, they'd name, like, every single culture that existed and there were warriors from it. They kind of had that same uh, um, rhetoric or uh, they, they kind of propagandized the R- Red Army the same way, where it was just, right. like, this Grand Eastern army, and they tried to play up the Asiatic part of it Right. Um, to make it more to make them different uh, to make them more different and in, in oriental and
2: scary. Mm-hmm. Um, to 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 the West. You know what uh, this really reminds me of? Genghis Khan, Moscow. That song. Moscow, oh. Moscow, Moscow. <laughs> Ruslan Moscow. is untrue, Ruslan. <laughs> <No. laughs> uh, dude, because like, if you look at the like the main like dancer guy, singer, whoever he is, right. He has kind of like that, like more Mongol look to him. But if you look at the periphery, the, like Genghis Khan as the group, you know, when you're watching these these you know music videos and all the music that they make, they kind of represent that meme, you know, because each of them have a different look to them, you know. Like one of them looks like this, like blonde, like you know, uh, like very Slavic looking woman, and then like the main dancer guy looks very like like he could be the horseback rider guy, you know what I mean? And they they have all this like. They kind of try and in in a meme way represent all of the different, you know, uh, looks and phases of of Russian culture.
1: That is is interesting. Um, Something else I've actually read about Scythian. There's, I I can't, I forget where I read this, but there's um, something to be played about Scythians. Or there's like a theory that the Scythians culture defeated the Mongolian horde like it was like scythian culture that I've heard that
2: before um I don't oh, know have you ever heard anything like that Well I know that they were um that they did uh fight against um uh uh, uh not the khans uh it was um fuck who's the horse lords that they It wouldn't with? have been the
1: actual scythians cuz they had ceased the, to exist by no, the time the, that mongols No and I'm talking about the, the actual uh the scythians the huns no not the huns Yes Yes, the Huns.
2: The Hun, but uh, there's a specific Hun. The Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun. Thank you.
1: But yeah, the Huns are another example of that. What that step? Those steppe people that just kind of uh, moved. Europe has been invaded so many times. There's been so many different invasions of Europe, which makes it just this really, really kind of uh, hodgepodge of different like identities and cultures and and things like that because of just the pure and not i'm not even talking about like the more recent invasions in our history like Mm -hmm. ancient ancient invasions like in the very very prehistory world there's been so many different migrations into europe um which makes it you know i think like very unique um now here's something else going back to I'm probably by the way it
2: was it was the Sarmatians but as you know the Sarmatians were the you know the 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 folks that came from the Scythians or at least the ones that superseded them after a while but same same idea Scythians Um, uh, Sarmatians fought the Attila the Hun and beat them back there's
1: another another thing in Czech culture just just to go back to that Um, there's also kind of like this sense of pride that the, the the Czechoslovakians were the ones that beat out the Mongols. Mm-hmm. Uh, you now everyone wants to take credit for something. Like, oh, it was us right. who beat them. It was our ancestors who be defeated who expunged the Mongols out of Europe. Um
2: all, all interesting stuff. What else do you have to add? Um Well, I mean, just kind of going back to the original like article that we were talking about earlier, you know, all of this information that we've been talking about have been basically coming out of the archaeological evidence that we're getting out of these Scythian burial tombs. And, um, you know, these are these are all in the, you know, uh, Russian and Ukrainian areas, and they're, the burial sites are called kurgans or castles in Russian. Um, and, you know, what, what I think what's important about this is that there is this... Well, first of all, the Siberian permafrost is able to, you know, keep well-preserved all of these mummies and things like that, which is you know, thankfully is why we're able to learn so much new stuff about it. But, you know, it brings us to the original topic, you know, uh, that Russia's could be cloning the Scythians for some weird ass reason. Very likely, you know, this is just a bullshit, you know, clickbait uh, article. But, you know, what I think is, I find fascinating about, about the whole situation is that the Scythian peoples, right, uh, Inhabited the same land as what what we would now uh, understand the Russians and, and the Slavic people generally you know, to inhabit, and they kind of just disappear, and they also pop up in in this like you know ethnic mythos of the Slavic people in that area. So you know I find it fascinating that that you know in this moment where we are legitimately you know uh, having you know, some tensions you know with Russia, especially on the Ukrainian border that, that we're now getting an opportunity to revisit, you know, their history and, and like, think about and learn about, you know, the, the potential places where they came from, you know, because I think it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, the, the, the whole region is a bit of a tinderpot right now.
1: Yeah. And, um, have I think, a shared
2: origin, you know,
1: and, and what, the goal is, on one of our next episodes, uh, we want to We want to go back and forth, um, you know, tackle modern stuff as well as hit the historical stuff as well. But I think the next logical step to explain some of the differences and, and just like an overall kind of historical context that I think most people should know about this area of the world is, is probably going into the Kiev, the Kievan Rus, um, yep. which is the first state – that emerges in that area, the first like mm-hmm. st- place that we would consider a state, which emerges right. around, um, you know, eight hundred, nine hundred A.D. So a thousand years right. after the Scythians are, are are have ceased to exist. Long gone. No, right. there's an argument of who they are and what their combination are, but essentially it's like you know the Vikings, it's Norse people from Sweden and people from Finnish people, Finnish yeah. people, and all these different people, you know, collective create a but maybe some station, Scythians Kevin, or maybe some Scythians but I think that is a topic that we need to hit yeah. um, on another episode because that will open up a whole new can of worms uh, I have I just want to just warn everyone to watch out for clone armies and maybe we should start cloning our own armies to yeah. combat that maybe we should start cloning like
2: like Comanche or something Comanches. Like that, you know? ooh, yeah, that would be interesting badass. yeah
1: that would be a good episode of Deadliest Warriors, the show that we were talking about the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Clone the Comanches, Comanches and were... have them
2: fight the Scythians. Who'd win? Yeah,
1: let's let's. Who's our? Who was the deadliest Native American tribe in North America? Was it? I mean, I think I think any of our tribes would probably lose though because we don't. They didn't have iron weapons at that time.
2: Mm, that's true. That's true. Well, I mean, we'd have to even the playing field, right? Wouldn't we? Like. Because you wouldn't put, like, you know, uh, an American soldier today against, you know, uh, a horse warrior because the American soldier would win because they have guns, right? So, like, if you're going to fight two, two people from different time periods that have different, like, technologies, wouldn't you just have to either give the, the um, Native Americans some, you know, iron weapons or perhaps maybe increase their numbers? I don't know. Who knows? To make it a fair fight?
1: Yeah, it would be an interesting uh, TV show concept. Um, all right, that's all everything I had to say. Yep, same. <laughs> all right, um, thanks again for uh, joining us for another episode of Bro History. If you enjoyed the content, you can get more content going to our Patreon, a uh, Patreon uh, slash Bro History. Uh, you can join for just a dollar a month. Um, extra content. Um, join our Slack community where we all uh, communicate. And then another thing that's really helpful to help us is to rate and review the podcast if you are listening on Apple. The number one way to grow, the majority of our listeners, ninety about 95% of our listeners come through Apple. Um, one of the reasons why we get so many listens on Apple is because you guys rate and review the podcast and it really does help us grow. It helps tremendously. So, if you're listening on Apple, go to the star thing in the top right hand corner. Go to rate and rate the podcast. Give it a five star review. Um, write us a nice little review. Say, "Hey, you guys are a great podcast, and I appreciate you guys. And I'd like to tune in every week." You can write that, or hey, you can even write, "Hey, you guys can go rotten hell." You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe whatever the, floats maybe your boat. The belt. former. I may disagree with you, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but but definitely do say it. And, you know, we're, we're coming really close to that 500 mark, which is awesome considering where we started. Uh, so we really appreciate the, the um
1: Yeah, get us the, the 500 reviews if you're listening to us. Um, we're right there. All right. Um, enjoy your um, Sunday. This is when this—we're recording on Saturday. This should be released on Sunday morning. Um Have a wonderful week, and uh, we will see you next week. Peace. Peace.